Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club, and this is your show. So after the defeat to Crystal Palace, there might have been some nerves about the direction this season was travelling in, but a dominant display in a comfortable Manchester derby win, coupled with title rivals Chelsea and Liverpool dropping points, has made things look a lot rosier going into the November international break. City now sit three points off the top of the table after beating United at Old Trafford. Was it their most dominant Manchester derby display ever, even if the scoreline didn't reflect that? We'll be discussing that and the talking points from the game on this week's Blue Moon podcast. Also on today's show, we'll hear from former City midfielder Tony. Tony Grant about his time at Main Road under both Joe Royal and Kevin Keegan and the regrets he has about that part of his career. All of that to come, but first let's get into that Manchester derby. I'm David Mooney, I'm joined by City fan Murd. Hello, are you okay? Not too bad, thanks Murd. And the Athletic City correspondent Sam Lee. Hi Sam. Hello guys, you alright? Not too bad at all, not too bad at all. Um, so Murd, let's, let's start with that big question then. Um, was that City's most dominant derby win at Old Trafford? Simple as that. At Old Trafford, uh, ooh, it's either that or the three 0 under Pellegrini against uh, against David Moyes' United. What would that have been? Two thousand and fourteen. Yeah, um, I, I would probably p- say this one, uh, and purely for that second half performance where we didn't actually score, of course, but uh, yeah, it was complete control. But that that Pellegrini one runs it close from yeah. from memory. I I, I mean, the, the the obvious one to say isn't is the six one, isn't it? But City were not dominant in that. No, and I think, you know, I still, it still amazes me when I look at the times of the goals scored. I still can't believe it because it didn't feel that condensed at the end of the game. And we still, you know, when Fletcher scored, I think it was 3-1, there was always that nervousness. I, you just didn't get the impression United were going to score. So I genuinely wouldn't include the 6-1 in our most dominant performances. Yeah. Um, Sam, we talked on uh, the Why Always Us podcast this week uh, about um, the scoreline and the dominance. Um, I, I, have you have you managed to piece together yet why the why the score didn't match the dominance? Well, yeah, I mean, it doesn't take much to piece together, does it? And I know Murd's got a lot of thoughts about strikers and whatever, but that's just how they play this season, isn't it? Um, and last season as well. And Guardiola summed it up afterwards with his press conference answer when the question was put to him: Could you have attacked a bit more second half? Um, pushed a bit more and I'm sure everybody in the away end and watching at home was thinking United are terrible here City is so dominant they could push a bit more you know Foden could go at Wan-Bissaka a bit more you could maybe get Sterling on on the right or Mares or whatever but his answer was you know it was just all about passes all about controlling the game he didn't want to let United in on the counter-attack and he said that way we wouldn't create a lot of chances but it would be enough to score and he was right they did create good chances but the finishing let them down so that's why and why they why the finishing let them down is the you know the reasons we kind of spoke about all season. But mainly, if you're going to play with basically six central midfielders, then you're going to control the game. 
but they're not going to be the best finishes, and it's probably that's probably the simplest way I can put it. Yeah. Well, Murd, I'm not gonna I'm, I'm not gonna make you relive the, uh, the the whole striker debate all for, that we've had all season <laughs> again. Uh, but have a listen to this. This is what Pep said after the uh, after the United game when asked about uh, controlling the game. I ask in the half time more passes. We have to pass more the ball. So when you make a little the transition or you attack a little bit quicker than then you need to attack, they, they will attack him much, much quicker. In the transitions, they are much better. So you allowed Rashford, Cristiano, and contact with Ruben, uh, Bruno Fernandes, and the transitions are good. So we have to rifle together, and, and with that is more passes, more passes, more passes. Maybe we don't have a lot of chances in this way, but the chances are more clear and enough to win the games. Support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Murd, is he, is he showing United too much respect there? Because United are crap. Uh, I think the saddest indictment of, just referring to what Sam said, the saddest indictment of, of, of United's performance on Saturday was at 2-0, at I wasn't really bothered about us going for the for the jugular at all because I knew after five, ten minutes United didn't really have a plan as to how to get back into that game and so it was a case of just seeing the game out now most people say see the game out after ten minutes to go, twenty minutes to go we were seeing the game out after 55 minutes because there was nothing there so it just was a passing exercise and when you think about after the international break, the sheer amount of games two games a week until what, March? Actually I didn't have a problem with it, and I know a lot of City fans didn't have a problem with it, so I don't think it was an, uh, a respect for United. I actually think it was just really sensible that, actually, I think there was a general approach from City that we're not going to get anything here. We'll pass and pass and pass. In the event that they do come out and try and force it and try and press us remotely highly, then we'll just pick them off. I just don't think Pep thought that we put ourselves under any undue pressure by going for it. Just pass it and let them make the mistakes. As it was, they didn't make the mistakes but it was just too comfortable. So I don't think he was giving them any respect. I just think he was being really honest. Yeah. Sam, the, the other side of this is, uh, we, you know, we've talked so many times about previous derbies between uh, Solskjaer and, uh, and and Guardiola. Was that still in the back of his mind at 2-0, do you think? Yeah, definitely. Like he said, I know Murder was saying that he wasn't paying him too much respect, but I think he was. And this is a point I made on our other pod. You know, if that had been Rotherham or Birmingham in the FA Cup, then it had started bringing on kids or it had made a few more changes. But because it was United... It was probably, well, he, he was paying them the respect because, as he said in his answer there, they're much better on the transitions and ne- not necessarily much better, well, better than City on transitions, but just City aren't really set up to cope for those transitions either. So you'd be playing into, United. well, he felt they would have been playing into United's hands by opening up, creating more spaces for them to break into. Like The way he sees it, the game was the, the game was won. They didn't have any spaces to break into. They didn't have one route into the game that they would like to exploit. So he just thought there's no point in in carrying that on. And exactly the way that Solskjaer's record against Guardiola is, is there's no right really for it to be as good as it is. But that's how they've done it. They've they've played for those transitions. That's where they've generally scored a lot of the goals, um, or at least. Actually, it's not where they've scored a lot of the goals, is it? But it's where they've caused some problems. Yeah. You think to the derby last season, it was the early penalty. You'd say the sure one was. Um, that, the last one before the pandemic was just poor defending, switch off from a free kick, and then Edison chucking it out. But anyway, in terms of the way the teams are too set up, United would love spaces to counter-attack into, and Guardiola was just never going to give them that. And that explains the nil-nil last season as well. 
Yeah, um, Guardiola was it, it was it was talking a lot about control after the game because he also said this. Have a listen to this. The game is quite similar like we played the previous season. So we control, we control, and they wait an action, you know, for the counter attack, one set pieces, one action to punish you. But the control always was in our hands as these five, six years all the time. Uh, but they are so good, and we didn't want it is let them run. And who is the best way to let them run? Have the ball and have the ball and have the ball. And passes and passes and passes. Be in the position, the ball go where we are. And after the quality, my friend, the quality of the players that we have, make the rest. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Facebook.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. So I, I, that also, I guess, explains, Murd, why he didn't make any substitutions. Because like, he can't. He, he does this thing where he consistently talks about needing more subs and then never uses them. And that was a whole <laughs> 90 minutes without using any. I think it's just a trust in the players. When you think about that performance on on Saturday, and it was a mirror image of, in in lots of ways, the Chelsea performance as well. I mean, all right, Chelsea had that chance towards the end, but generally our control there, uh, and the Liverpool first half as well, and the Leicester game as well, I think there's just a general trust in the players. And when thinking something is going so right, and it was going so right, it was so simple and so easy, there wasn't a need to bring on fresh legs because you could argue the players weren't exactly exerting themselves in that second half, were they? So I don't think there was that real need to bring on anybody else. Maybe a Fernandinho in the last five or ten minutes, but again, what would have been the purpose? The players weren't in any trouble. They weren't looking overly overly tired. Yeah, the conditions were a bit heavy. It was just going too well that there was absolutely no requirement to change it whatsoever. Yeah, were you were you in the away end on Saturday mode? I was. I was yeah. fortunate enough to, to get a ticket. It was brilliant. Um, I mean, well, because my other question for for this is like after after living through United's dominance of the nineties and the noughties, and knowing that 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 United have now lost more Premier League games at home to City than any other Premier League team, and they've done it in that manner, like how how does that feel? It, it's it's still really surreal. So the same the same feelings of gut wrenching sickness come over you the morning of the game. You know, and, and it's the same with everyone else where you'll feel fairly confident all week, then you'll wake up Derby Day and feel sick. And then you say, yeah, but we're better than them. And that doesn't mean anything in the derbies, as we've seen in the last couple of years. And as we saw when United were great and we weren't so great and we'd nick the odd result. So it never stops feeling special. The, I've, not, I've still not got used to being at Old Trafford and winning. And my record when I've actually attended Old Trafford is actually really good. But you don't forget the times where you get absolutely humped. I was there once we got beat 5-0. Simon Tracy was in net for us. I was oh, in yes. the United end. I was in the strep. I was in the strep, <laughs> in the strep for them and I got a lift home with a load of red mates. And you don't forget nights like that. You don't forget getting beaten um, regularly at, at Main Road either. So it will never stop being special. Never. You don't get used to winning trophies. So you certainly don't get used to winning derbies when you've had 20, 30, 40 years of misery. Um, it's going to take a long time before that starts to change. Just on that, Murds, um because there's a lot made about United fans at the ground. You know, they don't get on the manager's backs. They don't, you know, if it was they Spain, didn't. there'd be white hankies and that. No, they didn't. Yeah. But what they did do was sit there and do nothing while they got the team got absolutely embarrassed and the fans just couldn't couldn't sing. There was no... I, I seem to remember at the end of the Liverpool game, there was a bit of defiance at least, but they were just... There was nothing. And going back to your experiences there, of you know, you can't take anything for granted and how good it was, like all those recent games we've mentioned in terms of dominance, it must have been a different kind of atmosphere as well because you just look around and the United fans, they just had nothing. 
yeah, there was, there was a general shock. For me, and this clearly might not be the case, but it felt like a collective penny drop for large parts of that crowd. I know this isn't a United yeah. podcast. It just felt like a collective penny drop where the remaining 20, 34%, 30 or 40% who were behind Solskjaer just thought, oh no, that's it. But they won't boo him because it's like booing your own son. As someone at work said to me yesterday, they just stay quiet. But if it goes on any longer, I'm sure it will absolutely turn. But yeah, it was a collective just acceptance that the gap between City and United is huge. And um, it was great for us, but really dangerous territory when you're a football club to just sit there and accept it. Yeah, I've done two derbies at Old Trafford, Mud. I did the FA Cup... um, the FA Cup game, the 4-2 loss there in about 2004. Um, and then oh, McManaman and Neville. Yeah, that one. And a few years later, uh, my mate Will Unwin uh, got us tickets in, uh, we were in the Stretford end uh, for, it was a one-all draw um, where Andy Cole nearly won it for City right at the death. And yeah. uh, Van der Sar tipped it over the, I think he tipped a, a shot over the bar and it was like the 93rd minute from, from Cole. And I thought, like we both thought it was flying in. And Will stood up next to me and, and, and almost started to celebrate. And I was thinking, God, we're in the United end, we're dead. And uh, I've never seen a cover-up like it. He just, he just went, oh, great save. And then started applauding the save. <laughs> and I thought, like, yeah, thank, thank you, Will, for at least preserving our, our safety for the next couple yeah, of minutes. We've all been there. <laughs> all been there. Um, Sam, I want to have a look at uh, Guardiola's tactical setup um, because we've we talk a lot about um, getting the, the the players wide. Uh, this is what he said about why he picked uh, a left footer on the left and a right footer on the right. This is uh, this is from after the game against back five. When you go left, you go to Bailan, you break all back five, and with a back five, you play in opposite foot uh, leg. So right foot in the left, you go inside, they wake you. And that's why we thought like they got a good result against Tottenham. We thought the best way is play Phil left and, and Gavin right. In the, both can play in different positions. So is that during the game, I thought or we thought that uh, they could play in different positions. Gavin can play left and Phil and right. So it's not a problem. But in that positions, you make the actions to the byline and you drop them and you, you can make more, more efficient your, your attacks. You see stats pop up all the time about clubs and players, and you want to know that exact thing about City. There's an answer. StatCity.co.uk Want to find out all of the players who played alongside club legends like David Silva, Sergio Aguero or Vincent Company? Or maybe you'd like to know which team found it hardest to score past Joe Hart. You can find out City's record in every competition, at every stadium, and under every manager. Just go to statcity.co.uk and browse away. That's statcity.co.uk. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. I can't explain why, but it sounds, as that press conference went on, it sounded like it got more and more underwater. So that's the last of the audio that we're going to use from <laughs> it. Um, Mike Cook's been in touch on Twitter as well to say, great win and not an inverted winger in sight. We always look better without them. Uh, so Sam, what did having Foden and Jesus so wide do to help City's control of that game? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I'm going to say I don't understand overall because there's no way Guardiola is an idiot clearly and if if anyone is out of this uh, between me and him then it's me but <laughs> they play against a back five all the time and they use inverted wingers quite a lot so it's very strange like given Grealish has played so often this season and 
I'm sure there'd have been a fair fair few back fives in there. And even going back to last season, like so it's strange because he he did this in January when when I asked, you know, what's been the reason for the turnaround? He talked about going back to wide wingers and stuff and then abandoned it anyway. And he's done it a few times. So I don't get why I mean, there's again, he's obviously there's obviously logic to it, but I don't know what the subtle difference is. Maybe it's not the back five itself, but maybe it's how the midfield's set up and you know, the fact that United had three in the middle and one of them was Bruno, maybe they could get it across the pitch easier. But in terms of how it worked, when Guardiola says you can drop them, I assume he means pin them back, make them deeper, or in terms of the fullbacks anyway. So they just, Foden and Jesus stayed really high up. And Foden, if you think about it, certainly as far as I remember the game, he didn't uh, take on Wan-Bissaka, like barely at all. Maybe once or twice, not, not even sure he did that. And I'm sure he was told, you, just, you stay in this position. And when you get the ball, just pass it. You don't need to go past him. You don't need to risk losing the ball because, you know, maybe you'll expose then Cancelo in a one-on-one or a transition or something like that. Just get the ball, use your position, keep Wan-Bissaka pinned back. And, you know, the, the spaces will will come then because the midfield can manoeuvre around United's midfield three. Cancelo, as we know, was basically like a left-sided playmaker in all that space because one per second couldn't get to him. And it was the same on the right-hand side with Jesus and Shaw. Like how often did Shaw get forward? There was actually the one when Ronaldo hit that volley early on that Edison saved. That was probably the only time I can remember Shaw get, getting forward. So that was the effect, really. Stop the fullbacks getting forward, the United fullbacks. And then it, that gave City's midfield and, and Cancelo in particular more space to, to work in a bit deeper. And Obviously, that's how they controlled the whole game and they thrived in all that space. Yeah, the the other side of it, uh, Murd, is is the, then the roles of Walker and Cancelo behind the wide players because, um, like Sam's already mentioned, Cancelo, and I, I feel like Walker's going a little bit under the radar for what he offers City right now as well. Oh, well, I um, I did something really unusual after uh, the following day. I watched the game again, not because we won, because we've won a few games, but I just I was intrigued as to was it really that easy? And I had a few drinks, obviously. Um, you could see Walker in central midfield on more than one occasion, in fact, quite a lot. And actually, when we do play those wingers, those out-and-out wide men, it allows him an opportunity to do that. Cancelo can do it anyway because he's just a fantastic footballer. But Kyle Walker looked so assured as well coming in and being able to play the ball from a central midfield position, from a centre-half position and play it down through the middle. It was too easy for him. He does go under the radar anyway because he's an absolutely fantastic footballer and has been since he joined. There's been times where he's switched off on the odd occasion, but generally over his, what, five seasons here, he's been immaculate. But he's still learning under Pep and he will still learn under Pep. And as he comes inside more, he'll learn to play on the ball a lot more and use less of his pace and more of his brain. But yeah, our fullbacks were just as key as those wingers. And if we can just say one thing on that, well, the one thing I bleat onto Sam about quite a lot on our WhatsApps is the 17-18 season, we had Sané on the left, Sterling on the right, and Aguero or Jesus in the middle. We were absolutely outstanding. We played against teams playing four, five, six at the back, uh, and it was always the answer. And I get that Pep always wants to find different answers to different problems and different solutions. These are the same problems he's come up against in his six seasons um, so why he chooses to change that? Clearly, it's been successful large parts of the time, but the times when it hasn't been successful, you'll find that we've played inverted wingers. Very rarely does it go wrong where we play out-and-out wide men. 
Yeah. Sam, there's there's another name that uh, I want to throw into the mix as well in, uh, in Zinchenko, because when when Cancelo isn't there at left-back or right-back and, and Zinchenko comes in, how does that change what City have to do at the top end of the pitch? Because if you've got, if you have Foden wide left hugging the touchline, Zinchenko doesn't really come inside, does he? Uh, or does no, he? I not, don't know. Well, I mean, he, he, he tucks in and plays as like a... Like the the double pivot role with Rodri, um, I mean he, he can stay outside as well. But no, if Foden were to stay out wide, then um, Zinchenko would um, it, it'd be in it'd be in that inside position. But obviously his use of the ball would be different. He wouldn't be putting in crosses towards the back post with his right foot. Um, I suppose he'd be trying to thread through the little balls. You know, if you can imagine, you know, that space where David Silva would be when he used to play that ball in behind the defenders. You know, it, it would be that kind of use of the ball, or or maybe he'd just. I don't think he had great duties in terms of switching it to the other side, but I think he would just keep, he keeps the ball moving, doesn't he? So it wouldn't be the same as Cancelo. There wouldn't obviously be that attacking threat. Um, he, he just he just ties it together, but he would he would be tucked inside. Um, but he, obviously, you just get a completely different um, type of pass, type of cross, type of um, he doesn't really carry it so much either. And obviously, it's on a different foot, so he'd be travelling in a different direction. But more yeah. probably balls in behind for. You know, for Foden to break off the line and, and come inside too. Yeah, um, I want to talk about Kevin De Bruyne mode because uh, on last week's show, the panel Gary and Anya couldn't decide if he should play in the derby because he's he's not looked himself mm. recently. Um, how do you think he did in that game? I think he did better than he's been playing, so it was a much improved performance. And I can't even believe I'm saying those words about Kevin De Bruyne. Um, his form going into it, let's make no mistake, what was was by his standards really poor. Um, I have some sympathy with him um, because of the injury he got in the Euros. He doesn't seem to be moving as as, as as easily as he has done in the past. And I'm sure there's something there. But again, City wouldn't be playing him if he was, he was in danger of seriously damaging it, you know, it further. But either way, his performances have been you know, just not at it at all. When I think about Anfield, he scored. I think about Burnley at home, he scored. So he still has an impact on the game, but his overall performances have been way off. Actually, in the derby, he played really well. But again, without labouring the point, it wasn't the toughest of tests for him at all. <laughs> in, but, it, but, it, but it wasn't, and I'm not yeah. even being smart after then. It genuinely wasn't. He played well, should have scored um, from the one and only time that, that Foden um, took on Wan-Bissaka and crossed it that led to the Jesus chance. He should have scored, oh. but generally, he was much better. I genuinely don't think you can gauge Saturday's opponents in terms of his recovery. Let's see what happens in the international break, whether he plays for Belgium or not, whether he's rested to some degree. That big run of fixtures is so important, but it was a much improved performance from him. Yeah, Sam, we, we said on Wireways Us, he's probably not going to get a rest with Belgium, is he, even though Belgium's opponents uh, are not are, are not the toughest? Yeah, I can't remember who they've got exactly, but it's, it's like Estonia and Wales, perhaps? Yeah. Um, but no, he probably won't get that much of a rest. Um, but yeah, um, it, it is it is what it is, really. It, it might be, in terms of Murd saying he wouldn't be playing, not so much if there was a serious injury, because yeah, if there was a chance of him making it much worse. Um, but I, it, I do think there has been a, a hangover from the ankle injury and um, the concussion, possibly. Um, I remember when Bernardo was having that poor season in 2019-20, and I, you know, there's been other reasons for that, but I remember speaking to someone around City and they said, he needs six months. He just, for whatever reason, I can't remember what it was now because it was a couple of years ago, they just said he needs six months to be back to his best in terms of his sharpness and, and fitness and that kind of thing. And you just think the only option is to play him. You can't tell him to go and have a rest for six months. 
So I guess that's the same with De Bruyne. Yeah, just kind of play through it. Yeah. Um, the midfield, Sam, uh, Rodri, Bernardo, Gundogan, uh, that that kind of that trio. Um, when these three start together since the start of last season, uh, they've got such an impressive record. It's played 27, won 25, drawn one, lost one. Um, I should have checked, actually, but I don't know who that defeat was against. Um, what 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 makes it so that these three work so well together at the moment? Because it's not always been like this, has it? I think I think it's the overall setup, how the team's working in general. Because this is interesting. Do you remember in his in Pep's first season, and also into the the second one, and, and maybe a bit beyond that? But it'd go to three at the back sometimes, wouldn't he? And do you remember that it was always seemed to be so we could get Gundogan in the team as well. So it had Fernandinho, De Bruyne, and David Silva, but it always won Gundogan in there as well. And I'm thinking, he's probably come into English football thinking, well, we're going to control games with midfielders. We're going to control games with more passes. And the same, the same as now. But maybe the way he tried to do it back then, and I can't remember the exact shape it would be, but it, the criticism was always that he was shoehorning Gundogan in and it didn't really work. I think now he's found a way because obviously it's not Fernandinho, it's Rodri, and David Silva's gone, but Bernardo's there. He's found a way to get those extra midfielders into the team. Like I said earlier on, you're effectively playing with six because Foden can be a midfielder as well when he drops in. And, um, Cancelo as well is a, is a midfielder of a slightly different profile. He's more destructive, I'd probably call it. Um, but I think this is the way he's, he's, he's worked out how to do it. This is the way he's worked out how to control games with the extra midfielders. Um, so I, in terms of it not always working... I'm thinking, and you might have more recent examples, but I'm thinking early on when he was trying to get everybody together and work it out. But now with a false nine, I think there's a better balance to it. But obviously I think maybe there's a bit of a false equivalence, but it seems like if you play with a false nine, you're not going to have as good finishing. I'm I'm not sure that's strictly right, but that seems to be the case with how City are going about it. But it does give them a, a lot of wins, and obviously that's how they got to the Champions League final. So. Yeah, I suppose you um, could say long may it continue, but they they do need to add more goals. Yeah, uh, well, th- this is the other thing as well, Murd, because they seem they, they've it's, it's almost like they've lost Gundogan's goals this year because he was he was such a high performer last season, and I guess you can't really expect him to maintain that high performance consistently, you know, year on year on year. Um, but they don't have the number of goals that they had in them at, at times last season. You look at, at someone like Bernardo as well. He's he's someone who's who he loves this sort these sorts of games, and he scored a, a fair few at Old Trafford now. But he's not the he's not the regular scorer, is he? No, no, and um, that is my one singular argument for the fact that we we do need a striker. He's not well, we need a striker because everyone else has got one. It's it's, it, it's the pure fact that. Over a season in the Premier League, City's squad is good enough to win the majority of games, and that's cool. You'll beat Burnley 2-0, not break a sweat. When it gets to the quarterfinals, semi-finals of, of the Champions League, and it's tight, and you get one chance in the 73rd minute, you need that to fall to someone who's clinical, absolutely clinical. Whether that's a Kane, or a Haaland, or dare I say a Ronaldo, you need that person. And we don't have that person. I think we all need to come to terms we don't have that person. So it's almost a, it's not a plan B as such, but there will come a time in a run this season where we're you know, in the running for the three remaining trophies that we will need that golden opportunity to be converted. And we don't have those players. We have some of the best players in the world. They are fantastic footballers, but they are not finishers at all. And it's a select breed of people in the world who are the brilliant finishers they are attainable and we should we should have gone and got one by now because it isn't just a 
season and a half thing. This is, you know, you should always contingency plan. You should also future-proof your squad. We've known that Aguero is coming to the end of his peak fitness for quite some time. We've needed someone for three or four years. The need now, though, is so great that I, I don't, I don't think we should act in January. I absolutely implore that that we do because that running is so critical. You only get one chance in some of these games, and we need someone who's just a real cold finisher. We don't have anybody in the squad who fits that bill. Yeah, Sam. Is there? I mean, from from like a journalist point of view, is there is there anybody? Are there any stories floating out there that could actually signify that City are going to go in go in for someone in January? Because it's not really their style, is it? Um, well, I think you always think back to Laporte, and they tried to sign Mares that summer as well. Um, so, if the player's available in terms of the top class player they want, you know, if Grealish had been available last summer, I guess they would have done it. Sorry, last winter, I guess they would have done it. Um, so the question is, is Haaland going to be available? And I, I don't know the answer. I've heard, I've, I've mentioned this on the other podcast. I've heard one, I wouldn't say sp- spurious rumour, but certainly unconfirmed that Haaland could be a possibility in January, but I wouldn't I wouldn't pin too much on that. And that was about yeah. a month ago and nothing's really come out since either. So yeah, I wouldn't pin too much on that. In terms of what Murd's saying, there'll be a time during the run-in. I'm not even sure it'd be during the run-in. I think what Pep's saying in terms of that second half approach, more passes, um, we won't create a lot of chances, but there'll be clear chances, and then you just need to score them. I think that's how they're going to play loads of games this season, and well, all of them. And that's how that's how they played against Southampton. That's how they played against Palace. And yeah, whether it's a seventy third minute in a big game where it's tight, you know, whether that's in the running in the Champions League quarter final against Atletico Madrid, I, I, it's more likely to be a, in a home game against you know Everton or West Ham or something like that. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying there's a big concern. I'm just saying that's probably how the season's going to look. Right, um, I think I think that'll be less of an issue away from home where teams generally give City a bit more space. And again, I've said this on the other podcast, but I wouldn't be surprised if City won every Premier League away game from now on, especially because they've had most of the tough ones already. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Just want to touch on Stones and Diaz being back together, uh, Murd, because um, mm. Laporte, Laporte had been fading a bit recently, I thought, but uh, overall he's been very good this season. Uh, it's still good to reunite that that partnership from last year, isn't it? It, it? it feels it feels like like these these are the two that we've wanted in there from the start. Yeah, I mean, you say we. I, it's, you're absolutely right. The, the strength of feeling towards the Stones and Diaz partnership is huge amongst the fan base. I've noticed it all season. Even when I've thought Laporte has had some really good games, uh, you know, he's a fantastic footballer. He's, he's generally at the top of his games, the peak of his powers. He's a, he's a superb centre half. But actually, it just felt right. It just felt right on Saturday, and I'm not going to mention the fact that it wasn't a great test, uh, you know, <laughs> of Stones' abilities. But um, but yeah, I think that that you'll find as well. It feels to me the way 
Pep operates. When you think about the Delph incidents of how he didn't play for us for much longer after he got sent off on those two occasions, a lack of discipline. Uh, and maybe you'll find that Stones will be in for a very, very long run in the team, barring a couple of cup appearances. I think it'll be Stones and Diaz now. But that seems to be the popular one amongst the fans. I think up until up until those last three games for Laporte, it was neck and neck for me. I was absolutely fine with either. Um, but I think Stones has earned the right now to, to have a run. Yeah, there's, uh, there was one moment, Sam, that, that illustrated City's dominance in that game where um, Stones, the ball got played in behind and uh, Stones went chasing after it because he assumed he'd be under pressure. And then he knocked it back to Edison and then he looked over his shoulder and there's about 10 yards of space behind him in the United uh, United oh, front line. Maybe, maybe that happened another time because I saw De Bruyne do that. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. and, it was, and it was Ronaldo. and Because I remember thinking he didn't have to do that in the A because Ronaldo just didn't bother chasing him and... He banged it all the way back. So either we're talking about the same incident and one of us has got the player wrong or it happened more than once. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, I wouldn't be surprised by either surprise. About which, whichever one it was, yeah. Uh, Sam, I want to finish uh, the United review with um, a look at that uh, VAR and penalty shout because we didn't mention it on uh, on the Why Always Us podcast. But uh, like when I've, when I've seen it back, why, why is that not a penalty? Yeah, well, I've seen the angle kind of from behind. Um, right. So... The angle where the goal is ahead of you rather than the angle from behind the goal. There was only two that they showed. And on the first one, it looked like there was a little touch on the ball. And on the second one, it didn't. It, it looked like there was no touch. So I don't know. Yeah, so I've looked at it three times. And when I was in the ground, I didn't think it was a penalty because I thought it got a touch even though I'm miles away. It just looked like it. Yeah. And then I saw the replay. I thought, well, that's the clearest penalty you see all day. And when I watched it back the following day, I thought, no, he did get a touch. Yeah, I, don't, <laughs> I just don't know. He, did, he didn't get a touch and then go through the man, to be fair. He got a touch and his, his foot didn't move. And then, you know, Jesus he, Jesus was tripped or fell over it. So I always think if I if that had happened to us, what would I, what would I want? I think it's just this side of a penalty. I just don't think it's quite a penalty. But yeah. I've changed my mind three times. That's all right. Well, the, the official reason why the VAR didn't uh, give it was that there was a touch on the ball. So um, the, the VAR yeah, can't really overturn really. Michael Oliver not giving a penalty because he touched the ball. But equally, the VAR wouldn't... Uh, if, if Michael Oliver had given a penalty, the VAR wouldn't yeah. have overturned it either. So uh, it's one of those that really is in the grey area. That doesn't really help us. Um, right, so in the late 90s and the early noughties, uh, City had a bit of a turbulent time. Relegations and promotions dominated the era as a combination of Joe Royal and Kevin Keegan tried to steady the ship and keep the club in the Premier League. On his push to get City back to the top flight, Royal brought in a midfielder he'd worked with previously at Everton. But during his time at Main Road, it's probably fair to say that Tony Grant didn't have the impact he and the manager would have hoped. I've been speaking to him about his 18 months at the club. Well, obviously, uh, Joe was my manager and Willie were my managers at, um, at Everton. And I just felt as though I needed to move at the time from Everton. I just wanted a little bit stale. And I thought, I just, I just need to go and play. I hadn't been playing. I had a few injuries. Just, just hadn't been playing. I really wanted to go and play. And obviously the opportunity to sign for City came up. And in the end, I took it. I took the opportunity um, to go and play for Joe again. And that's basically it, really. I mean, I had, I had 18 months left on the Everton contract at the time. And looking back, maybe I should have just stayed and just hung around as for my own career, but I was that eager to go and play. I was sick of, I was sick of just 
being injured and stayed on the bench that I decided to to uh, take take the jump. It, I mean, I guess it, it obviously didn't bother you that it was that City were a division below. I mean, even at that stage as well, it wasn't certain that City were going to go up that season either. No, I mean, I never, I never really done my own work because when I signed City, were top. Um, I think they were top of the league, or they were, they were certainly in the top couple, and they had quite a strong squad. And basically, I joined and went back on the bench. So rather than being on the bench at Everton, I went on the bench at City. <laughs> so. It sort of uh, mentally, it, it wasn't great for me at the time, but it, it was what it was, and we did go up, didn't we? City did go up that year. Yeah, uh, I mean, obviously, it, it, just looking back at the dates as well, you signed on uh, on Christmas Eve, so this was before uh, transfer windows were were a thing at the time as well. Uh, and your debut was two days later. Was that was it hard to come in and and just kind of be thrown straight into the team? No, not really. It it wasn't so. I, th- I think we did. I think I come on sub, my debut. I'm sure I come on sub for my debut. I you you can probably tell me if I'm right or wrong there. But I thought I came on sub for my first game, and it was that main role. And it, as you, you're right, it was round. Well, it would have been round late December, January. And main roles was it for me? It's a bit like Goodison Park. It was a real old school stadium. Um, they, they packed it out. It was there was a bit of an energy around Main Road. There was a smell of football. It was what we all loved, and you know, it, I really enjoyed get playing playing for City, and I enjoyed playing at Main Road. Yeah, and I remember coming on, and my first touch was a brilliant touch. <laughs> but um, no, yeah, so I do remember me my debut. And it was a couple of days later, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, how did how did Joe sell it to you moving to City at that time? Did he need to? I mean, obviously, you'd worked with him before. Well, I almost never, I almost never signed in the end. Me, me agents at the time sort of persuaded me because I, somewhere along the line, I just didn't feel it was the right thing to do. And on the journey back, it was or in the hotel before we we left, it was, it was. Lots of things go through your brain at the time of do I go back and, and playing back in the reserves at Everton or do I take this chance? And originally I wanted to get out of Liverpool for a little bit. Um I probably should have went a little bit further than Manchester, but <laughs> I only went down the road. Um so my agent sort of persuaded me in a way. I I, I had lots of time for Joe and I thought his coach Willie was was a was a really good coach. So I was looking forward to working for Willie again. At the time, um, Walter was the manager at Everton. I just felt the pecking order at Walter. So I probably joined City really just for a, for a change. And I did I did change in mind, but then I changed it back and obviously I signed. I think I signed for three, three and a half years at City then. Yeah, what what was Joe's management style like? Um, because obviously, you know, these days you've got a lot of co- we, you, you, we put a lot of focus on coaches and and kind of how they how they speak to the players and how they uh, how they set up tactically. What what was Joe like? Uh, Joe was a very he was like a dad in a way. So you know you you can you, you could always feel the love from Joe, and at the same time, like your dad would, you could all you can almost feel the fury from him. But what he had, he had a good coach, you see. So he didn't do that much coaching, Joe. Willie done most of the coaching. And Willie was around the players all the time. Joe was out, Joe was out every day. And he was always making sure the environment and 
the way the players are and the fitness. They were always spot on. He had high standards. But Willie ran the place, really. How we played was very simple. It was, it was very simple under Joe. It was almost up to the front man, out wide and playing the opposition half. It was a very simple way of playing. I mean, City obviously play a very complicated way now. And lots of teams do now, but in them days, it, it was almost 4-4-2. Get the ball up, get it back, get it wide, and let's get the ball in the box. So, um, that was, his management style was that. He, he looked after his players, and at the same time, if you weren't pulling your, pulling your, um, your weight, you'd, you'd know about it. Yeah, but uh, what was that dressing room like as well in terms of the, the players that were there? Who were the characters in there? Oh, there was too many. There was too many. <laughs> It was too many to to talk about. I mean, there was a lots. Of, there's lots of players, and there's lots of who, at the time when you look back, and you don't really realise what's going on in in the world when you're a footballer. But you had, you had players like um, young Jim Whitley, uh, sorry Jeff Whitley. Well, Jim was there as well. But Jeff, you know, and Jeff Jeff's well documented and his time at Manchester, and he was such a great athlete. He was a great athlete. Um, that was his main asset. His main asset was he could he could get about the pitch, you know. But he had he had hard times from from that time, and then you had people like Ian Bishop on the other end, you know. And the, all I can say really is the dressing room was always lively. But football in the nineties, late nineties, early on, it, it it it's not the same as it is now. It really isn't. There's, it was just starting, really. I suppose we were the end, the end of footballers who were doing lots of things with uneducated, uneducated things, should I say? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of focus on uh, on fitness, and you said Joe was uh, was big on keeping players in shape. Um, I don't know if you've heard it. Nicky Weaver tells a story about you on uh, the Under the Cosh podcast uh, that you uh, you once ducked out of a running drill in train in a training camp because of a hangover. Uh, is this true? Well, it probably is true, actually, yeah. Now, as I say, going back in the day, as I say, I mean, these podcasts, you could touch on lots of things. Education was key, and we had a lack of it. And and some players from certain backgrounds never had any education when it comes to real life and being professional. You just got bye-bye ability. Now lots of players are getting bye-bye just looking after themselves in, in, in a general way and playing very basic um, but, but when I was playing, there was so many players who we done silly things. I suppose things that now you you know you, you know more now, and things you pass on to kids now that there's t- certain things in life you just don't do when you want to be a professional. And I think now most players don't go down that road. But in my day, lots lots of us did. Yeah, um, you mentioned earlier on as well about um, being on the bench at Everton and then then kind of trading that to to be on the bench at City. Was it difficult at that time being in, in being basically in and out of the team all the time? Yeah, because you know what people the life of a footballer is so different when you're actually it is like you're almost in a bubble, you know. So it, it's tough. People say it's an it's it's a really really tough way because you have to live with yourself. You have to travel um, and your, your your mind's constantly having games with you so then you're not playing so then when you're not playing you want to go so I went on loan to West Brom under Gary Megson under, when I was at City 
And um, I always remember I was playing really well. I was really enjoying my football at West Brom and West Brom wanted to buy me. And then all of a sudden, Joe calls me back because he just brought Andre and I had a good relationship with Andre at, uh, at Everton. So whereas I was really happy at West Brom, I probably would have really liked to assign for them. That got sort of kibosh because my club was City. So I went back to City, got back in the team with Andre, but was in the end, that, that lasted a few games. Then I was back out the team and then I lost the chance of going to West Brom. So football is it's a very complex, especially in my day, it's a little bit different now, but back back then it was it's very complex. If you're not playing, you have lots of issues to deal with. Do you start to doubt yourself in in those sorts of moments? Because I mean, obviously, you're at the top of your game. You're, you're one of the, the 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 you're you're one of the top footballers in the country because you're playing in the Premier League and you you know you're playing professionally. And yet, you're not in the team. Is it does it does it weigh on you mentally? Yeah, you you definitely have days where you in games where your confidence is ebbed away and things that would come natural. You just don't. You just don't do the natural thing no more, and you overthink things, and that's when it, that's when your confidence is starting to get affected. And then you you roll that in front of thirty, forty thousand fans as well. They don't see your unconfident; they just see your bad action. So you know, football confidence is a is a huge factor in you playing really well or not playing great. So when you hit them them moments in football. You have a lot of problems mentally and maybe that's where your education, you end up taking the wrong path then to make yourself. I mean, it's it's a real complex, it's real complex times. Football, always been a complex time for footballers and back in our day, there was no one really understood it. They just, you know, you had to real, what the, what the old saying, you had to man up and just get on with it and fight your way through. And that's what you do, really. You just fight your way through. And if that means going to a different club to try and gain your love or your fight back, then that's that's what you're doing. That's what I done when I went to West Brom, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess Main Road as well were, could be quite an unforgiving place because the fans were, were close to the pitch, weren't they? Uh, it, well, when I joined, funny enough, when I joined City, we used to do a warm-up in the school. We used to get on a bus. And I, I couldn't believe it in my first game. I was thinking, where are we going here? And the lads were, we're going on the minibus. I was like, where to? There's a school around the corner. So we, Willie, before I got there, they must have had a, a barren time and results must have been great. And the fans were having a bit of a go to play, supposedly. So they took the warm-up out the equation and the lads all went to a school gym for a warm-up, which was a bit a bit crazy, I suppose, but it's, it's what we've done anyway. And then we got... I remember playing Leeds, funny enough. We played Leeds, Leeds were in the Premier League. They were a really good team and they battered us this day. But we went, before the warm-up, we went to the school. When we tried to get back to the changing rooms, we couldn't get through the crowd. And Chappie, Les Chapman was the uh, coach driver. And we had to stop us and we all had to jump out and run through the, run through the crowd to get our shirts on. That's why we got battered. I want to talk about uh, one of the the final games of the uh, promotion season now. I mean, it, where where were you for that uh, for that final day at Blackburn? Were you at Ewood Park? Yeah, I was there. I was with I was with all the players. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, was what, yeah. What was that like? Well, it was unbelievable because I actually went on to work at Blackburn for next for eight years, nine years as a coach, and. Um, 
going going to Blackburn City had fans all over the stadium. So, I mean, I don't know how many fans it took, but I'm going to guess he must have had 12,000 fans at an away game. That's, that's my guess anyway. Um, and we actually didn't start great, I remember. It, it looked like we were struggling. And then all of a sudden, it, we, it kicked on and we, we nicked the goals and we got the goals and we ended up winning comfortable winners. But, you know, I think, I think City... We deserve to go up that year. It was a good championship team. It was a good, strong championship team, that team. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the Premier League season uh, the year after, you mentioned you went on loan to West Brom, came back into the team uh, later on that season. Um, again, like when you come back from loan, is it, is, it, is it like joining again and you've got to kind of bed in again in a, a, a new club, even though it's the club that you've played for? Not really, no. I mean, because you know all the players. Um it's it's just a matter of coming back and getting on with it, really, you know. So when you come back, you come back and you're just training as normal. It's not not really changes. It's like when you meet up with players now. You know, you go and play in a testimonial now, or you're playing a charity game now. You meet up with your same players. The same banter still goes on now as it was years ago. Not on change. Not on changes. It's it's a bit a bit strange, really. But that's that's what happens. Um. So coming back was was never a problem. Coming back, and you know, I, I actually was looking forward to coming back because obviously we're in the Premier League. But as I say, it's at the time, you know, you have to look at yourself more than more than anyone else. And at the time, you don't really look at yourself. Most footballers even now don't really look at themselves. Um, they always try and blame someone. I suppose I, I, I was probably no different at the time. I was going to ask, where do you think that that season went wrong? Because um, I mean, from the outside looking in, it, it just felt like like the team towards the end of the season was just just had too much go wrong in the first half of the season. There was just no confidence there by the end. Yeah, to be honest with you, I don't think we were good enough personally. I don't think I don't think the game plan to play in the Premier League was 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 strong enough. Um, so the Championship team was a decent champion, a good a good Championship team. We just never had enough quality, in that, especially in that final third. We never had enough quality. I mean, you've seen the difference when Keegan come in with the types of players he brought in. You, you, the quality in the final third just jumped up a notch. You know, so we went up, but we just never had uh, enough good players to real, really, or, or a, a good enough game plan to really sustain, stay in, to fight and to stay in the league. Yeah, and then, I mean, obviously, relegation came in the. Yeah. It was the second last game at, uh, at at Ipswich. Were you involved in that game? Were you playing that day? No, I don't remember that game. No, I was. I was, was going to say, do you, do you remember what it was? What the, the feeling of having it confirmed? Do you remember what that was like? Yeah, listen, I, I mean, we. I think we knew before before going to Ipswich, we 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 almost knew what what was happening. And you know, it's it's not a nice place when you get relegated. It really isn't. I suppose at the time, City had been in League One a couple of years before, and it wasn't deemed as. I mean, we all know City is a huge club, so to the fans, it was a massive failure, and and to all us, it's a failure. But at the time of City, they were, they were so much of a yo-yo club. It was like part of the norm, you know. Well, let's, let's build again and come up next year. It was. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. Not one was built to sustain, you know. So, it probably needed. Big cash injection, and maybe it needs a big identity like Kevin Keegan to just give it another real good go. Yeah, were you, were you surprised when when Joe was sacked, or, or, or 
it's, I mean, when a team goes down, is that the sort of feeling that you think, hang on, the manager might go with? Yeah, I think I think City being such a big club, it was like Joe had done a great job for them. Let's have it right. You know, I think he took them from League One. He got them back up. He got them back up again. Maybe change, you know, in football, it's it's very unusual for managers to stay to stay long at a club. So maybe the maybe the board thought, you know, we need a change. We need a new identity. We need a new a, a new injection of of energy. Who's out there? And obviously, Kevin Keegan was a was a big name. He he done great at New. He built a good team, an exciting team at Newcastle. Um, obviously, they wanted to go down that road, and it was it was strange that Joe went and Willie actually stayed, which that, that was quite unusual. Um, but then obviously Willie didn't last too long himself. Then then he left. Yeah. Well, how did how did Kevin Keegan change things? I mean, one of the things that he was quoted as saying at the time was that everybody will will get a fair chance and a clean slate. Was was that true? I I think it was. Yeah. Even even to myself. Yeah. I think I think he was fair. You know, he wanted to play football the more than more much more than what Joe Joe's way of playing. Kevin was all about get the ball down and play clever and he, he got excited when you play clever which which was good for me um, and yet he did give me a fair crack of the whip and me personally I, I never took the, the opportunity things I say to kids now is you will get your opportunities whether you take it I never under Kevin um, I had no but I've got no harsh words for Kevin I thought Kevin was good on what he'd done I thought he brought good players into the club um, he changed the mentality at the club he brought in a good um, fitness coach called I forget his second name but his first name was Juan I think he, I think he went on to have a good he's had a good career in football after that and the whole the whole mantra that City's just started to slowly change and it did become more professional more more challenging but yeah I'd say Kevin did give everyone a, a fair crack of the whip yeah yeah I mean, it's, it's interesting that you say um, you don't feel that you took that chance do you regret that? Yeah, because I, I remember once Kevin saying to me, I remember him saying the words clearly always stuck with me. He said, Tony, he said, there's a player inside you, let it out. At the time, you know, it's just words, but it's only when you really analyse it. And I under, I totally understand what he was saying, but a lot of the reason, when that player did come out, it was very good. But when he didn't come out, he wasn't. But why didn't he come out all the time? That's the real question. What, what's the real? And a lot of it is down to lifestyle, lifestyle, and um, how how you look after yourself. That, in my opinion, that's that was my only downfall. Yeah. Um, then obviously the the move to Burnley came about um, a bit later on that season. Did it? How, how how did that happen? Funny enough, we were training, and I I always got on quite well with Kevin Keegan, and. Um, we were training, and obviously, I'd just come out the team, even though, and, and even at the time, training, I knew it was my own fault. It wasn't definitely, I knew I was still training well, and I was still a, a part of the squad, And it, but, but, but I weren't going to play. And Kevin just fought, pulled me and said, look, stand here and on the phone upstairs if you want to go and chat to him. I went, I think it'll be a good idea. And he, he agreed with me. And I went up to his room, and me and Stan had a chat on the phone. And then um, I left later that day to go down to Burnley to have a chat. And, you know, instantly I got on well with Stan. Stan was in the same ilk as uh, a Joe Royal type of guy. And then he was he was like, 
someone you could warm to instantly. A little bit old school. Um, and obviously, I just thought I needed to get away from City. And that's what happened. Did you did you play against City later that season? Well, I played for City against Burnley, actually, that season. And we beat them 4-0 or 5-0. And then later on that season, I played for Burnley against City and City beat us 4 or 5 again. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I played for City. I think Georgie Weir might have played that game as well against Burnley. I'm sure he did. Um, but we, 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 were, we, we were very good. That was early on the season. Um, and obviously I joined him a couple of months later. So I started in, in Keegan's teams and then obviously... Ed, I played my way out and ended up at, at Burnley, where, where they actually got to a stage where I got a bit older and maybe I got a little bit more sensible, maybe. And I started really to try and enjoy me, my game. Hear all of our City interviews on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. That was Tony Grant speaking to me about his time at City. We're going to finish this week with some audience questions. Get in touch on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. You can email through the website as well, uh, bluemoonpodcast.com. And that's exactly what Johnny the Bakewell Blue has done. He said, hello, David and guests. Hope you're all well. Can I dare to ask another contentious question for you to mull over? After the last few weeks, have we finally seen Rodri step up and fill the shoes of the previously irreplaceable Fernandinho? Until this season, Fernand was undroppable in a City best 11, I reckon. And we all thought he should have started the Champions League final. However, Rodri has been just superb recently, strong, omnipresent and with a great tactical awareness. He was better than both of the United central midfielders on his own. I never thought I'd say it, but have we finally gotten over our Fernandinho addiction? Murd, what do you think? We didn't mention Rodri uh, that much in the in, in the first bit of the show, so uh, let's give him some praise now. He is behind Bernardo in our player of the year. He's been absolutely outstanding. Um, at, at Stamford Bridge and Anfield, he was beyond colossal I can't speak highly enough of him he's a brilliant footballer and I actually I've actually enjoyed watching him in his two or three years I know he's not been a fan's favourite I actually think he's a really good footballer and if it hadn't been Fernandinho in the Champions League final it should have at least been him um, and what, I know, what I've noticed a lot he's a lot more flexible in his movement so he doesn't just pass the ball the way he's playing he can turn and, and switch switch um, switch wings likewise he can, he's, he can play the long diagonal as well he can play it forward through the lines he's a, he's a superb footballer and as I say he's for me behind Bernardo in our player of the year so far yeah Sam um, I mean the, the nicknames there, there's Plodry there's uh, HMS Rodri there's uh, Rodri Zontel uh, <laughs> so I mean, he, he's not had a, he's not had the greatest of, uh, of starts to his City career um, and I remember, I remember talking to you about uh, we did a bad take amnesty uh, at the end of last season. I remember one of mine being that I, I wouldn't be disappointed if Rodri never played for the club again, and that was after the Leeds game at the start of last season. Um, yeah. There's a lot well, of us with egg on our face. Yeah, well, but I mean, I, I think I can tie this all together. Murd um, saying how so the mo- mobility and him looking uh, more assured and stuff. You know, that's going to have come with the improvements he's made. You know, he's been at City for two and a bit years now. So obviously you would expect him to be to be better um, than he was when he joined. But basically, what why was he struggling other than, you know, the, the general adaptation of the first season? Why was he struggling in his first season? Because there were a lot of games like that Leeds game where City were really open and they had faced a lot of counterattacks. And I've said this a million times already, but the coaching staff knew when he came that the areas he needed to work on in his game in terms of like positioning and off the ball stuff and when to close people down and tackling and that, 
and he was having to do that way more than they expected. So he was being made to do the stuff he's not necessarily good at. And now I think about the last, well, it's just the last year, isn't it, basically? Why does it look so much better now? How many counterattacks are they suffering? Not many. Yeah. And it goes back to what Pep was saying. United are better on the transitions, so don't let them have any transitions. So he's not having to do that as much. When he does have to do it, as Murd says, he has improved individually and he's better at dealing with them. And I think we've seen that in the Chelsea game and in the Liverpool game in particular, which are two really difficult games. And obviously for different reasons, I've missed a few City games actually since then. So there's probably really other good examples as well. But for me, as much as he has improved individually, the team wasn't playing to his strengths at all when he first came. And now they are. Yeah, there was there was one incident, Sam, actually, in the first half. It might even have been at nil-nil as well, where uh, I think he had, he had three United players around him and he kept the ball turned and just knocked it square, I think, to De Bruyne. That's, yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. He wouldn't have done that last year. No, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the sort of thing that... I mean, it's it's, it's playing under pressure as well, Sam, isn't it? That's 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 improved for him. Yeah, I, I guess so, yeah. but it, Because I think... I'm, I'm no expert on this, but he's... I mean, he's technically fantastic, isn't he? And I know like the mobility has been an issue and now the mobility seems a bit better or whatever, then then that's come as well. But in terms of that ability to play under pressure, I think he always had the technical ability, but maybe mentally he couldn't show it. And maybe that's come with the, the confidence of the team being better, um, him feeling more confident in himself, any number of things. I think he's just, yeah, whether it's mental or the, the, the setup of the team, it now helps him show, show his best. And, you know, technically... He's brilliant and working in those small spaces, the way he manoeuvres the ball, that was never really in doubt, I don't think. But again, even going back, and in terms of bad, bad take amnesty, I wrote something probably last November before City turned it around, just saying, like, I just don't really get what he's supposed to do, don't really get what he does, so many sideways passes. But again, if you look at it now, the, the team was set up, it was so turgid, wasn't it, last, like, around this time last year before they before they fixed things in December with a double pivot and that, there was no attacking options, it was so safe and that was, that again, that was Pep's answer at getting rid of the transitions obviously now he's found a much more fluid way to do that but before, there, were, there wasn't really the passing options for him to make and he, he was finding them and I wasn't really noticing it but on a on a much less frequent basis, um, yeah. but yeah, now just to go back to what I've said already, it's all set up for him now yeah. Uh, final question for this week comes from Ian Aspinall on Twitter, who says, "Will a safe standing area improve the atmosphere at the Etihad?" Mur, there's, uh, there's, there will be safe standing at, at the Etihad from January. Um, are you going to be? Are you going to be part of it? Are you in that? Are you in that area? I'm not in that area, no. So I'm in. I'm in the third tier of the South Stand. Um, I think it's a great idea. I think. I think it appeals to a demographic of supporters across the country. Um, will it improve the atmosphere? Yeah, probably. It's really interesting though, because when I floated the idea of standing at a football match to, to my eldest daughter, who's 16, who, who's now got a season ticket, she thought it was absolutely mad. She'd never <laughs> heard of anything so ridiculous. And why would I stand up for two hours, Dad? And so there'll be, there'll be a group of people who actually genuinely think it's mad to stand for two hours. Unfortunately, that's the, that's the modern, modern era in which we live in. But I think it's a brilliant idea. You have to try it. And uh, if it benefits the atmosphere, then brilliant. If it's cheaper for people to attend football matches, even more important. Yeah, I, um, I, I must admit, it's it is very much one of those things, Sam, that I would like at football, but it's very much not for me. I quite like I quite like a good sit down. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, again, to to kind of break the I don't know the taboo of of this podcast. I think the last the last United game I went to was when. United played PSG at Old Trafford a couple of years ago before the you know the famous turnaround that happened to get Solskjaer the job. Um, 
and I stood for the whole game. I thought, fuck me, this is, this is harder than when I did it 10 years ago. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it's a really good idea. And there's loads of, I'm going to sound really old here, but there's loads of young people who are going, what city isn't there? Loads of <laughs> You're like younger 18 than me, to 25. I know, I know, I'm only 33. Um, but there's loads of like 18 to 25-year-olds, uh, younger, who they'll absolutely love it. And yeah, going back to when I was going to matches regularly and standing up, you know, I didn't, didn't oh, I t- kind of took it for granted at the time, 18, 19, 20 and all of that. Um, but yeah, last time I tried it, it was probably about 30. It was a completely different experience, yeah. yeah. So yeah, you need to know what you're getting into if you go through it. But <laughs> it, it should help, it, it should help should help yeah uh, right so that brings this week's show to a close thank you very much for listening thanks also to my guests for this week Sam Lee yeah thanks very much and to Murd thank you for having me uh, if you'd like to help the show out then please go and give it a rating and a review in all the usual places but especially on Apple Podcasts if you can if you'd like to help out further then you could become a Patreon supporter and for just £2 per month you'll get a whole host of bonus shows and you'll get this weekly podcast ad free as well take a look at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast for more details City might now have a week off as well but we don't we'll be back in seven days time to preview the matches with Everton and PSG see you then was the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast